chapter 5. Back into Matthew's Gospel, I'm thankful for that. We're going to do a verse-by-verse exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this will take us through the end of the year, no doubt. Slow and steady wins the prize. If you have a Bible with uh, Jesus' words in red letter, this is the really inspired part, okay? (laughs) It's going to be full of red. So, and actually, we are going to um, begin at the end of chapter 4, where I finished off last time as we do an introduction into the Sermon on the Mount, different and delighted. So let's see what we can learn today from God's Word. Aren't you thankful for God's Word? He hasn't left us alone. He's chosen to reveal Himself to us, primarily through the personal work of Jesus Christ, but through His Word. Praise God. And so let's pray and ask Him to reveal Himself to us this morning. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word that teaches us. Your Word is truth. Uh, Father, Your Word is eternal. Your word is life. And Lord, we come to you this morning weary and worn from the week. Lord, we have struggled, failed at some points, um, succeeded at others, Lord. Um, But we know that we come to you as a heavenly Father who, through the blood of Jesus, um, smiles at us, loves us, wraps your arms around us because you were a kind and loving Father. And we thank you as we come before you this morning. We pray now that you would teach us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who works so diligently in us through your word to teach us so that we might be transformed from glory to glory as we gaze upon the beautiful face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Let's look at the text this morning, Matthew 23, chapter 4, verse 23 through the beginning there of chapter 5. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds came from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And so here we have the introduction, essentially, to the Sermon on the Mount. And there at the beginning, he talks about this Good news of the kingdom, the last message that I preached, really focused on the good news of the kingdom. And so today we're going to talk a lot about the kingdom, because that's Jesus' point uh, in his Sermon on the Mount. And really it's Matthew's point all the way through the gospel. It's a gospel about the king and a gospel about his kingdom. So, why study the Sermon on the Mount? Well, quite frankly, when you preach through the scriptures expositionally, it's the next thing up, right? It is next uh, in the Bible. So um, that's what we're preaching next. And as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, I think it's, uh, like I said, there's a lot of red print there if you have Jesus' words in red. And, and, and the Sermon on the Mount really is kind of like you've got all the sermons, the teachings of Jesus, and then it's the Sermon on the Mount. Like it is like way up there. And it, and it is. I mean, it's incredible teaching. It is, as some pastors say, the greatest sermon ever preached. Um, But we do want to keep it in context that it is one of five teaching 
sections in Matthew's Gospel. It really wasn't called the Sermon on the Mount until uh, St. Augustine uh, named it that. And we'll talk next week a little about what that mount means. So study, we're studying because it's what's up next. Jesus talks about life in the kingdom, and I think that's important. right? We're all heading towards the kingdom. We're spiritually in the kingdom, moving towards the literal kingdom of Jesus Christ, I believe. And we want to know, you know, what do people, how do citizens of the kingdom live? How should I be living now in light of uh, my future destiny in the literal kingdom of Christ? I think this is important, right? We desire blessedness or happiness, right? He begins with the Beatitudes. I think most people, when they think of the Sermon on the Mount, they go right to the Beatitudes. And, and I would think most of us want to be blessed, we want the, and we'll talk about happiness, not in the worldly sense, but in the sense that God offers it to us, okay? We desire to be blessed. I think we also need to study the Sermon on the Mount because it is the most quoted, most misunderstood, and least obeyed section of the Scripture. And people can, you know, when you talk to people about the Bible and about certain passages, right, they, they're going to go like to Matthew chapter 7 real quickly, right? <laughs> Don't judge. That's part of the Sermon on the Mount. And so people quoted out of context, they misunderstand what's being said, and then just simple, simple obedience is extremely, extremely difficult. So that's why we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount. What are some wrong ways to understand the Sermon on the Mount? When you, when you read the literature out there, there are just many different views. I think D.A. Carson in his commentary has like nine different understandings of the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, if you read this, this guy, D.A. Carson, he writes a ton of stuff, and then he kind of gets to his point. I've kind of learned to get down to his point. Um, but nine different views of how we are to understand the Sermon on the Mount. And so I'm going to go through quickly. I'm going to go through four different ways of understanding that I don't think are the best way. Again, this is, this is really kind of my understanding of the Sermon on the Mount and how we should understand it. The first thing we don't want to do is we don't want to understand the Sermon on the Mount as a prescription for salvation. Literally, the Roman Catholic Church... Okay, if, if you want saving grace, you have to add works to it. Okay, and they would say the Sermon on the Mount is a part of that, that you need to live this out if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the problem with this is that it's antithetical to grace, right? We're told clearly that salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. Salvation is all of God. But we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Because at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes it clear, like, hey, you know, you don't obey my teachings, you're not really my disciple. We'll get to that in just a little bit. One commentator says this about the Roman Catholic understanding of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the conduct demanded represents the good fruit of discipleship, not the basis for or the means to achieving discipleship. You understand this? The Sermon on the Mount is that fruit which we bear. The obedience to that is the fruit of already possessing a saving faith. Obeying the Sermon on the Mount does not save you. A second way of understanding, which would be more of the Lutheran perspective, the Lutheran's uh, approach, and, and again, each one of these that I'm pointing out has some truth to it, okay? And in the Lutheran understanding, they, they always focus on this law and grace dialectic. All right? There are these two kind of opposing things, law and grace. And, and so 
If you know anything about Martin Luther, right, he looked at the law and it just drove him to Christ, which is supposed to do, right? God's given the law so we can see how desperately we need Jesus Christ. And we see all these commandments of God and we're like, I am, I fail miserably. What's going to happen to me? Well, Jesus, praise God, right? But they would kind of look at it almost way too heavenly, heavily in that aspect. And so to look at the Sermon on the Mount that way, um, really kind of loses the emphasis of the teaching and the fact that disciples who follow Christ do live this out. I mean, we're expected to grow in our obedience. We learn Christ, we learn his commands, and we grow in our ability to live out the precepts teach, taught to us in the Sermon on the Mount. D.A. Carson already mentioned him earlier. He says, the Sermon on the Mount does indeed drive men and women to a sober recognition of their sin and realistic understanding of their need for grace. That's true. But the Sermon on the Mount does more than that. It portrays the pattern of conduct under kingdom authority. Christ, a pattern that demands conformity now, even if perfection will not be achieved until the kingdom's consummation, when Christ returns and sets up his kingdom. Another way of understanding the Sermon on the Mount uh, is that it's a, a paradigm or a, an outline of utopian social order. Like, utopia is like the place you want to be because everything's perfect, nothing's wrong, everybody behaves, you have everything you need, there's perfect social justice. That's utopia, right? And so liberal theologians, as they looked at the teachings of Christ, they're really big on the, on the Beatitudes, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, because they like the morality, they like the teaching, and they know that a society structured on the Sermon on the Mount will, will be blessed, it will prosper. The problem is, is that liberal theology has, has taken the power that God has given us to obey the Sermon on the Mount, and they've removed it, right? Because if you diminish who Jesus Christ is, if you diminish his finished work on the cross, if you begin to question whether there is a Holy Spirit or that he works in, in people, then There's no power to obey the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why there's never been a utopian society built on the uh, commandments of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Really, two world wars uh, and all the suffering on the earth uh, that that continues because of the sinfulness of humanity um, really has kind of blown this, this idea out of the water. Another way would be to see the Sermon on the Mount is meant to be entirely about a future kingdom. So this is, when I was in seminary, there were some hardcore guys there, some, some professors, that the Sermon on the Mount, while it's good, really, it was offered to the Jews. The, the, the Jesus spoke to the Jews about life in the kingdom, about how you should live. He was offering the kingdom. They reject it, rejected it. So there's this kingdom pause, and, and really the principles of the Sermon on the Mount will not be lived out until the kingdom. And they really kind of diminish the importance of the Sermon on the Mount in our lives today. Again, these are very heady, smart guys that, that understand it this way. I just don't, I don't understand it that way because of, I think, what is the plain teaching of Scripture. So those are four ways not to look at that. Okay? Each one of them has some truth to it, right? The last one is kind of true because they won't, those principles, the principles of the kingdom, uh, Sermon on the Mount won't be perfectly lived out until the kingdom, when Jesus Christ is ruling from his throne in Jerusalem. So those are are four ways not to understand or approach the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm going to give you now what I believe is the right way to understand 
the Sermon on the Mount. And the first one is this, is that the Sermon on the Mount reveals the kingdom life that God desires for his people. Right? God desires for us to live a certain way, to be blessed. God wants you to be blessed, okay? And so the precepts given to us in the Sermon on the Mount are given by God through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can live the way we should as image bearers and be blessed as a result of that. And so under this heading right here, that the, the Sermon on the Mount reveals kingdom, the kingdom life that God desires for his people, I have two points. One is that we need to live differently, and the other one is that we need to live delightfully. We are to be different. We are to be delighted. You know, when you think of God, and, and you may or may not think of God in these terms, I think a lot of people do. They think of God as this, as this cosmic ogre who's lording over people, and he's constantly wanting to smite you because you do things that you shouldn't do, right? And I think we, we need to dispel that. We need to get rid of it. I mean, there is going to be a day of judgment, okay? There's no question about that. But we want to have a right understanding of God. And when he gives certain commands, what does he mean by those commands? Why is he given this command? Is it because he's just a rule kind of guy, like he likes rules? Or is it because he knows how we function best? And if we live according to his plan, then we will be blessed and we will enjoy life as we were meant to enjoy it. You guys want that? I, I do. So the first thing is we consider life in the kingdom, how we are to live in light of the Sermon on the Mount, Friends, God wants you to be different. God wants you to live differently. Think about your life for a minute, and I bring this up from time to night, from time to time. If you were taken to court and you were being accused of being a follower of Jesus Christ, would they have enough witnesses who would come forward and say, that person, yeah, they do this, they do that, they're a follower of Jesus Christ. Would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Do you live any differently than the world? In your mind, you may think you do. But in the workplace, would people know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? In your family, the way you treat your family, do you treat them differently than the world treats their family? And on and on and on. The problem is, is that as Christians, especially in Western, uh, Western civilization, Western Christianity, The church tries so hard to conform to the world so that it can appeal to the world so people will want to embrace Christ. When throughout the Bible, God is saying, be different. Don't be like the world. It begins in the Old Testament. right? If you were to consider God's people, when he brings them out of Egypt, he says, look, I'm going to take you into a special land. I want you to be just like everybody else in the land. Do everything that they do. No. He's like, you're special. You're a kingdom of priests. You're a holy nation. Holy means set apart. I have really cool plans for you. I want you to be different. I'm going to bless you, and the world's going to look at you. They're going to go, wow. And so he says in Leviticus chapter 18, he says this. He says, speak. Oh, I messed my quote. Let me back up here. I'm trying a new way of going through my message, and I skipped a quote. Okay. John Stott, he is a commentator. I've got, I've got like nine books that I'm using to, to study the Sermon on the Mount. And John Stott's point in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount is this, 
Christians need to be counterculture. We have to be different. We can't conform to the world if we want to broadcast the glory of God to the world as his people. And so John Stott says this, and he believes the Sermon on the Mount is about being counterculture. That's what he believes the theme is. He says, for too often, what the watching world sees in the church is is not counterculture, but conformism. For insofar as the church is conformed to the world, and the two communities appear to the onlooker to be merely two versions of the same thing, the church is contradicting its true identity. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words, but you are no different than anybody else. So again, counterculture, not like the world, different by design, different because we live according to the precepts of God, and specifically here, given to us in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, as I said when I skipped this point, that God throughout history has wanted his people to be different. And so in Leviticus, as he's setting up this nation, he's giving you know, the laws to the nation, is, is he teaching that what loving him means, what loving other means, and how you're going to live that out, and specifically how you're not going to be like the other nations. He says, and the Lord says to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do as they do in Egypt. Don't be like them. Where you used to live, you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. Don't be like where I'm bringing you. He says, do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. And again, he's not this mean overlord who's trying to kill your joy. He's like, look, I know how you function best. And if you go down that path, it's not going to be good for you. He says, I am the Lord. So when you read the Old Testament, you see all these weird laws and restrictions, like don't wear mixed fabric, you know, you know don't cut your beard a certain way, don't get tattoos, you know, uh, all these different laws. It's not because God is like, you know, he was having some kind of a weird, you know, council with the Holy Trinity, and they were like, let's throw out some. He's like, I want you to be different. I'm setting you apart from the world. I want the world to see how different you are. Not just because you wear your skirts to a certain height and don't wear makeup, because you're obeying me. But the problem is, is that God's people were drawn to the nations around them. They didn't just cling to the customs of the nations around them. They clung to their gods as well. And they exchanged the worship of the true and living God for the worship of idols and all that that entailed. And God said, look, if you do that, I'm going to send you into captivity as punishment. And while they're in captivity, he says this. He says, and you will know that I am the Lord, for you have not followed my decrees and kept my laws. But what? You have conformed to the standards of the nations around you. You might be saying, well, that's God's people in the Old Testament. That's, that's the Jews. That's, you know, that's not us. He clearly says throughout the New Testament, be holy, for I am holy. To be holy is to be set apart. And I could go through verse after verse about the holiness of God, how he wants you to be set apart from the world around you. Do not love the world or the things of the world. And so they continued to disobey. And even when they came out of captivity, right? When they came out of captivity, they got it. No idols. We don't worship idols. We only worship God as presented 
in the scriptures. But they began to set up all these rules about worshiping God that, that were not from God. And their hearts became hardened, and they focused on externals and not internals. And their hearts were so hard that God said, I don't want your worship anymore. Keep those calves. Don't kill another one. And so in the last chapter of the Old Testament, this is what he says through the prophet Malachi. He says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Now that's the kind of God that people have in mind, right? God's going to smite me because I sin. And you kind of, people get that flavor through the Old Testament if you don't read it in tote. God had given them plenty of chances. And so the last words of the Old Testament, before 400 years of silence, was this. But when Jesus came on the scene and he began his public ministry and he began to preach, how did he start his preaching, right? How did he start it? Blessed. You are blessed. Not curse. You are blessed. So God wants you to live a delighted life. He wants you to live a different life, but he also wants you to live a delighted life. As Jesus comes on the scene, he begins the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Blessed, 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 blessed. Enough, Pastor Jay. Are you tired of the blessing of God? Jesus says it nine times in a row. Blessed. He says, I'm not here to curse you or destroy you. I'm here to bless you. But you need to listen to me. Listen to my words. And so Jesus begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed. What does that word blessed mean? What does it mean? Well, I'm going to give you an extended quote from a guy who knows much better than I do, a guy named William Barclay. And that word blessed is, is come from, comes from the Greek word makarios. And there's interesting that the Greek word makarios comes from the island of Cyprus, right? I, the island of Cyprus was called Hey Makarie because it was so fertile and productive and the weather was so good and there were so many minerals and natural resources. Like, that's the place that's just... It is, it is Makaria. It is blessed. And, and so that's the word that was chosen to describe the life that God wants you to have as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so William Barclay, he, he plays off of this. He says, Makarios, or blessed, then describes that joy. This is a longer quote, so bear with me. That joy which has as its secret within itself, that joy which is serene and, and untouchable and self-contained, that, that joy which is completely independent of all the chances and changes of life. You see, the English word happiness gives its own case away. This is interesting. It contains the root hap, which means chance, like happenstance, chance. Human happiness, human happiness is something which is dependent on the chances and the changes of life, something which life may give and which life may also destroy. The Christian is blessed. The Christian's blessedness is completely untouchable and assailable. No one, says Jesus, no one will take your joy from you. John 16, 22. The Beatitudes speak of that joy which seeks us through our pain, that joy which sorrow and loss 
and grief are powerless to touch, that joy which signs through tears, of which nothing in life or death can take away. That's beautiful, isn't it? How many of you guys want that? I want that. So as Jesus appears on the scene and begins his public ministry, he preaches the kingdom of heaven. In the Sermon on the Mount, he launches into what is the attitude, what is the heart of one who has entered into the kingdom? They're blessed. Jesus, friends, calls you into his joy, but he says you're going to have to be different. The inner attitude and the conformity that follows according to the divine ethos, the God's ethic, that makes you different may seem they seem like you can't do it, right? When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we go, I cannot do this. I want to be blessed, but I read the Sermon on the Mount. You mean if I have a thought about somebody that's hatred, I've murdered them? You mean if I have a lustful thought, I've committed adultery? You mean I'm going to be persecuted? You mean I have to watch my thoughts about people and judging them? It seems unattainable. We can't do it. And to the Lutheran point, you can't. Remember I said the Lutherans, this dialectic, dialectic law and grace, you can't do it. I can't do it. None of us can do it. To live out the commandments of the Sermon on the Mount, we have to be born again, right? Jesus wants you to have life to the full. He wouldn't offer it if he didn't make provision for it. I have come that they may have life to the full. That'd be kind of, kind of mean right here. You want this blessedness, you want this abundant life, but you're not going to have the ability to achieve it? And so the Sermon on the Mount reveals the necessity of being born again. You know, when I was a kid, um, I used to get these, if you're well, I don't know who can relate to this. Probably Kevin can, but he's not in here. This is, this is a model airplane kit. Has anybody ever done a model airplane kit or a model car kit? Okay, so, all right, so I'm not alone. Sometimes I throw out illustrations and I'm like, nobody gets it. So I'd be so excited, right? You, you get this gift, you know, you, you know, unwrapping presents and you'd shake it. As a kid, you knew, like, you hear the shake, the sound of all the parts. It's, it's a model airplane kit, right? so excited about it. You open it up and it's really, it's a spitfire, you know, and it's got a little man next to it. You know, it's got the, the picture on the side. It's, oh, it's really cool. And so you get it out and I would start taking apart all the plastic pieces. I'd jump ahead of the directions and, and I'd, I'd try to start putting it together and, and literally like 10 minutes later, I'd be like in tears and my fingers are stuck together from the model cement. I'd be crying at the table and my dad would come up. I'd say, dad, I can't do this. I can't do this. You know what my dad said? I'll help you. I'll help you. And so, as we consider the Sermon on the Mount and all that it holds for us, God doesn't leave us alone. No. He offers to transform our heart and give us His Spirit so that we can live out the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Ezekiel Chapter 36, this new covenant that Jesus talks about when he does the Lord's Supper. As we consider God's call on our lives to live differently and to delight in him and all that he has for us, we need to be born again. And so in Ezekiel chapter 36, God tells his people in the Old Testament, look, 
I'm making a covenant with you. And I'm going to make you different. And you're going to be different from the inside out. He says, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. Out of the nations, you're going to be different in your own land. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the new covenant. This is what Jesus was referring to when he spoke with Nicodemus in that nighttime encounter when Nicodemus wanted to enter into the kingdom, Jesus says, you must be born again. You have to be born again, right? In this conversation, well, how is a man born again? Could a man be born a second time from his mother's womb? No, he can't. Jesus says, no, you must be born of water and of spirit. And Nicodemus is like, I don't know what you're talking about. And Jesus is like, you're a teacher of the law. You should know what I'm talking about because it's in, it's in God's word. This is what Jesus was referring to here. This is the passage So God doesn't expect us to obey without his help. He knows we're going to fail when we try. In this passage, he makes provision, right? Kingdom admission. You have to have your sins taken away if you want to enter into the kingdom of God. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. So we have kingdom admission. We have kingdom desires. He knows that our desire is to conform to the world. The pool is so strong. In God's wisdom, he's got a plan for it. I can't understand it. God, you say, behold, all things are new. The old things have passed away. Why do I still have this sin nature? He's like, I'll give you a heart. I'm going to change your desires. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you a heart that's sensitive to the word. I'm going to give you a heart that's sensitive to me. We have kingdom power. I love this. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees, to be careful to keep my laws. Right? He doesn't leave us alone. He empowers us to do what he's called us to do. Not just because he's some comic ogre lawgiver, because he wants to bless us. God is fully invested in those who would enter the kingdom. How invested is he? So much so that he was willing to give the life of his son to take away your sins and that he would rise from the dead to give you the hope of the kingdom, the hope of eternal life. And so Colossians 1 talks about this entrance into the kingdom. It's kind of already not yet, I like to refer to it. That's kind of a, it's a cool you can read the Bible, it's already not yet. It's a theological thing, right? It's, there's this spiritual reality that's already, but we're not yet fully in the, the literal kingdom. The moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are removed through His finished work on the cross, and you are transferred from darkness, from the kingdom of Satan, into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. So people ask me, is the kingdom spiritual? Yeah. Kingdom literal? Yeah. God is ruling in your heart. He's the king of your heart. There's a kingdom there. This is where my seminary props would be beating me down right now. But this is what I believe. Paul says, For he has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. See that transference? Into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have 
redemption, right? That admission into the kingdom. Your sins are removed. The, the price for your enslavement sin has, has been paid. Your sins have been forgiven. We are transferred into the kingdom through Jesus Christ. It cost him his life. That's how invested God is. But he wants you to invest in it as well, right? That's the tension of Scripture. Salvation is by grace through faith. God saves us. Only God can redeem us through the blood of Jesus Christ. But later on, he would say, look, I want you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in you both to will and to do. Wait a second, you told me I was saved by grace through faith. When he says work out your salvation, it's like work out what it means to be saved. I want you to work out what it means to be a child of the kingdom and you'll be blessed. And so... God's invested. He invested by giving the life of his son so that you could be transferred from darkness into life. And Jesus says, it's going to cost you something as well. This is not easy believism, cheap Christianity. No, it will cost you your life as well. Because Jesus in his gospel says three times, each of his, Matthew, Mark, Luke, three times. Jesus said to his followers, his disciples, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Where? Follow where? Where, where, where? Into the kingdom. Forever who wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. And Jesus says, I've come to give you abundant life. I want you to be blessed. I want you to experience blessedness. And all that means the joy that the world cannot take away from you. And so Jesus says, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your life. You're going to need to follow me. And so we see the next thing about the kingdom, that the Sermon on the Mount reveals the necessity of discipleship. It reveals the necessity of discipleship, right? So Jesus is talking about there. Discipleship. And again, this is clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the word disciple means Learner. Learner. Learner means that this is something new. Okay? You're being taught. You are learning it. And I think the assumption is you're not going to get it right the first time. God understands that you're going to fail miserably at times, other times not so miserably. And even when you do your very best and it's marred with imperfections, God's not looking down at you going, I can't believe you did it that way. No, he's saying, I love you. Thank you for listening and trying to obey. I appreciate that. The Sermon on the Mount reveals the necessity of discipleship, right? Now, I'm not espousing a works-based salvation. That's not what I'm espousing. But Jesus is clear. If you, are, if you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun, then something's happened on the inside, and you're going to want to live differently. Like, you can't help to do it. If you don't do it, you feel really bad inside. It's called guilt. The Holy Spirit's good at letting us know we don't obey God. And so Jesus says at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, look, some of you guys are claiming to be citizens of the kingdom. Some of you say that you're following me. He says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So is Jesus saying you have to work your way into heaven? Is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying that. He's saying... If your heart's been transformed, you're truly striving to obey me. Those are the ones who are going to enter the kingdom, not those who are giving lip service to it. Again, in Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, and what? 
puts them into practice. Is like the man who built his house on the rock. We'll do that when we get to it, the whole thing. So your obedience does not get you into the kingdom of God because you will fail, at some points fail miserably. If you are a citizen of the kingdom, then you will make obedience a top priority, a consuming priority, and in doing so, you'll be blessed by your king. And friends, guess what? Here's the really cool thing. Sometimes God blesses us anyway. That's what I find amazing. Like, I don't deserve to be blessed because I've been so disobedient, God, but you've blessed me anyway because you're a good and kind father. And thank you. So the Sermon on the Mount reveals the necessity of discipleship. And lastly, the Sermon on the Mount reveals who Jesus is. The Sermon on the Mount reveals who Jesus is. Quickly, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is the preacher. He's the greatest preacher who ever lives. You know, when a preacher stands up and preaches, and I appreciate that Kevin DeYoung made this point when I was watching his sermon on this, he's like, you know, the preacher is supposed to fade into the background. Like, like you should be preaching and people are hearing the words of Scripture, they're hearing the words of God, and you become kind of a, an afterthought. But when Jesus was preaching, he's, he's the Son of God. He's God in flesh, speaking the words of God, the words of life. And when he taught, he taught with authority because he was teaching about himself. I mean, literally, he is the author of Scripture, and he's preaching Right, if you look at Matthew, the beginning of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, as he launches into these, this discussion about sin that we so struggle with, he says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. What? Because of me. He's talking about himself. You have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Because I tell you. You have heard it was said, but listen, I'm telling you, you've heard people talk about the Torah like this, but I'm telling you. I mean, you should imagine in the spiritual context in which he was speaking, and he says those words. Again, Matthew 5, 27, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you. Again, you have heard it was said to people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord vows you have made, but I tell you. It's about Jesus. And again, in Matthew 5 through 8, Matthew 5, 43, he says the same thing. And then at the end, we've already looked at this, but Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, he's like, I'm the one that's going to be judging you. Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, drive out demons, and in your name do many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, depart from me, I never knew you. About Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is arguably the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He speaks with authority because he is the creator and sustainer of all life. And that's why when he was finished, when he was finished, This is the reaction of the crowd. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. Really? And not as the teachers of the law. As I close the Sermon on the Mount, as we we go through it, at points you're going to be overwhelmed because we all have different sin struggles and we're going to get to one of the messages 
in the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to be like, oh, why? I shouldn't have come here today. Right? I shouldn't have come here. Right? Understand, when I'm up here preaching, I'm not, I mean, I think about you guys, but I'm not looking at you going, oh, that Paul, oh, Paul's listening now because I'm talking to him right now. I've had people come to me afterwards and say, were you talking about me when you're preaching? No, actually, it's talking about me. I'm sorry. I'm very narcissistic. Sermon on the Mount seems impossible. Jesus clearly lays out what it means to live a countercultural life in a world of darkness. He is honest about how many will actually enter into the kingdom of God, right? Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Broad. But that path into the kingdom is narrow, and few people find it. He promises blessing. He demands obedience. It is his right. He is the king. But remember, Jesus is not a heavy-handed overlord looking to punish at every turn. Jesus is a sensitive shepherd. Remember this. As you think about Christ and his commands, if you're a child of God, think of a loving, tender shepherd who's holding you in his arms and saying, look, that's not the way. I love you. The king is sensitive. He's already proven his love by laying down his life. King Jesus does not ask you to walk where he's never been. No, he calls you to follow where he's already been. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not lay burden upon you to break you. No, he calls you to learn, right? So the disciple is a learner. As he comes alongside you to help carry the burden, a burden of blessing. That's why in chapter 11 he says, I love this, this is come to me. You're weary and burdened. You're heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And what? Learn from me. Learn. Learn. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, the Sermon on the Mount is not a heavy yoke to be placed upon your shoulders. It is God saying, look. It's Jesus saying, I want to lead you into a blessed life. Come along with me. Learn from me. I'm going to teach you. You're going to have joy, but you've got to keep following. You've got to keep following. The world's going to pull, but keep following. That's my prayer for myself, and that's my prayer for you as well this morning. Let's pray. And then we're going to sing, sing it just as I am. Okay, all right. That's how Jesus expects you to enter into the kingdom, just as you are. He'll transform your heart and come alongside you to enable you to live out the kingdom precepts of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's stand up, and I'm going to pray as the uh, guests can stand, as the, as the leaders come up. I'm going to pray.